Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. You are about to meet one of the smartest people that I know. Jim Cumby is a JD and MBA from Harvard. He is a former attorney general in the state of Missouri. And he is one of the most recognized experts, I think, in specifically the Southeast of buying and selling businesses. So he's a business transition specialist. He wrote a book on the topic. It's called Home Run, A Pro's Guide to Selling a Business. And he's just become, AJ and I have become close with him over the years. I've learned a tremendous amount from him. One of our events, Eight Figure Entrepreneur, it's a, one of our phase four events. We actually talk about a lot of the principles that we've learned from Jim. And so we thought, hey, you should hear from him directly and get to meet him. He's also a brand builder's client. So you, those of you that are clients, you may see him at one of our events. He's in the community. So Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Rory. Uh, great to be here. Let me clarify. I was not a former attorney general of Missouri. I was a former assistant oh. attorney general in the state of Missouri. So I don't want my boss and good friend, John Ashcroft, <laughs> to, to, to think I was trying to co-opt his title. I was assistant that's, attorney general. That's good. Yes. Thank you for that. But you're, you're <laughs> also a Tennessee Supreme Court general civil mediator. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff going on. But when I think of you, I think of you as like one of the go-to people in my life for understanding business valuation, buying and selling companies, how does it work, what's the process, and so, you know, AJ and I were talking about people we should have on the show, and personal brands are interesting because they are businesses, but they have some specific dynamics, mm -hmm. which I do want to talk about, but before we get into that, can you just talk in general, if somebody doesn't understand how businesses are valued. Like when you sell, like we all know like how to sell a car or how to sell our clothes on mm -hmm. Craigslist or something. Mm -hmm. right. But how is a company valued when you go to sell a company? Just like walk us through the basic mechanics of that. Well, it's a lot more art than science hmm. because no two businesses are alike. You know, let's think about the house parallel. For example, if I sell my house, or I want to value my house. You know, the appraiser will look at comps in the neighborhood, you know, square footage, does it have a pool, does it have a porch, and, mm. you know, a fourth bedroom, a finished basement, they add it, you know, subtract, and they kind of reach an appraised valuation. Businesses are not like that at all. You have to kind of balance 
a quantitative look at the business and a qualitative look at the business. But a quantitative is what people are most used to seeing and hearing and talking about. And that is, sure. you know, a function of their EBITDA, which is a EBITDA is an acronym for or stands for uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. EBITDA is you could think of it as net operating income or cash flow. Profit. Um, I mean, effectively, yeah, in profit. terms, it's kind of um, like think of profit, right? Right, right. Okay. But you, you take that number, EBITDA, profit, and then there, you have apply multiple to it. People will often talk about know, the country club or cocktail parties or gatherings. What kind of multiple did you get? Or this guy got this multiple or this gal got that multiple. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very confusing metric. But, but quantitatively, you've got to look at the growth of the business the revenue growth, you got to look at the profit margin percentage, and then you have to look at, of course, the total size of the EBITDA. Those three things sort of triangulate to give you a multiple. Say that again. The revenue growth, the profit margin percentage. The profit margin, and then the overall size of the business. I mean, uh, for example, a $1 million EBITDA will sell for less than a $2 million EBITDA. The The multiple will be larger. The multiple yeah. itself would be larger. Let's say all things considered equally, the multiple on a $1 million business may be, let's say, seven. I would say the same business with the same characteristics, if it's a $2 million EBITDA, would probably get a multiple higher than seven, maybe even as high as eight. Just because just the rationale, buyers will pay more for size. Size does matter. So obviously, the business is more valuable at $2 million than $1 million by definition but it also will get a higher multiple. So size, revenue growth, and profit margin are the quantitative factors. And that's often where people stop, and that's a really big mistake because- Yeah, so qu- and hold on a sec, because I, I want to talk yeah. about the qualitative too. But So basically, if I have a multiple, it's kind of like going, I have one year of profits is some number, and right. then I multiply that times the multiple, which is a determined by these kind of three factors you're figuring yes. out. Yes. And then that's yes. what gives me the quantitative part of this is like the business would be worth, like if I had a million dollars in profit and a 10 multiple, then that would be a $10 million valuation right. of that business. Right, right. Okay. okay, now, so that's where most people stop, but the smart buyers start there. <laughs> On the quantitative, most people are they, just they, they, to stop yeah, there. Yeah, the smart buyers go to the qualitative factors. And that's what I wrote my book on, Home Run, A Pro's Guide to Selling a Business. I called them the seven principles of irresistibility. Mm. And the seven principles are the qualitative factors by which a buyer really is thinking. I mean, this is really what's filtering through a buyer's mind. And by the way, Rory, that buyer, whether she's buying a business worth a million dollars or whether she is head of merger and acquisition and buying a business for a hundred million dollars at a large company. These are the same factors that sort of filter through a buyer's mind. And these qualitative factors are kind of what moves the multiple up or down. So the quantitative, you kind of get a basic understanding. And the, the example you used earlier of a 10. So the buyer looks at the quantitative evidence and says, this business is worth a 10. But let's now look at the qualitative evidence and see how that might move that multiple up or down. And the qualitative factors are the diversity of the customer base, the sustainability of the revenue stream, the quality of the financial statements, 
the scalability of the business? Has the business demonstrated an ability to get more profitable as it grows? Is there a uniqueness to the business that really is distinctive that, that creates value? Is the business independent of that owner? Can the owner walk away? And I know we'll talk about this principle yeah, later. We're going to talk about can that the owner one. walk away from the business and the business continue? And then finally, is there a believable growth strategy? Any buyer huh. buys on the premise of future growth. So you, if you can communicate a growth strategy, and I don't mean put more money in marketing, that's not really a growth strategy. So those are the seven factors. So how you kind of judge a business in those seven factors may move that multiple up and may move it down. And so, and that's got, the art. I have to stop there because that's the art. There's no way to really quantify how that moves. So I missed one of them. I got diversity of the customer. The sustainability of the revenue stream. That's the one I missed. Okay, sustainability okay. of the revenue streams, quality of the financial statements, scalability of the business, uniqueness of the business, independence of the owner, and then the believable growth strategy. Right, right. Interesting. So okay. these are the factors. It's kind of like when I wrote the book, I really spent a lot of time over having done this for you know, over two decades, kind of really thinking about- And you've about actually how, sold hundreds of millions of dollars of businesses. Yeah. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. yeah Including amazing. my own. I sold my own. I left the Walt Disney Company 25 years ago and bought a radio business. How I got to Nashville, by the way, and bought a radio business and bought it out of bankruptcy. And four years later, I actually made three acquisitions and cobbled them together. And four years later, I sold that business to a publicly traded company. So I've been, been a buyer sides. and a seller. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've been an advisor. Yeah. So these seven factors are really how a buyer thinks. And every situation is different. In some cases, the sustainability of revenue is less important than the growth story. Sometimes the diversity of the customer base is more important than owner independence. It's all a function of the buyer objective. And this is where I go back to the buying a house is much more of a science, whereas this business is much more of an art because every buyer's objectives are different. So there is no absolute right or wrong as to how value a business. That's kind of a long answer to your question. How do you value a business? Well, kind of, it depends is the real answer. Yeah, but it gives you an idea. And then you have, you know, basically like strategic buyers would be somebody who knew that like, if they knew that your house was, you know, buried or was built on top of a gold mine or something or built on top of some natural resource that they could mine, now that house is more valuable. It's kind of like going like, well, the house is worth this, but we'd pay more for it because it's right next to our country club or it's right next right, to our grandparents. Right. Or I was outside this morning with my grandchildren playing in the backyard and my neighbor's house is for sale. And I was thinking, boy, I'd love to buy that house and, and have one of my children move in next door. Mm. I would pay more for that house. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, um, so I know that well, I'm not sure my children had, I was thinking that's such a good idea, but you know, <laughs> yeah, they, might not like, <laughs> they, story. they might not be into it. So there's a lot that goes into the valuation part, but specifically for personal brands here, mm -hmm. do you think it's possible, you know, cause I think when someone starts a personal brand, a lot of times like our audience is mission driven messengers and we go, mm -hmm. Hey, I want to start. Cause I just, I want to help the world. I want to make the world a better place. And then you get into it, and it, you know, at first it's like, it basically sucks a bunch of money and time, but then you start to be successful at it and hopefully you're learning some things and then you go, wow, I'm gonna make real money. And then it's like, gosh, I'm making real, real money. And then at some point, there's a few personal brands that seem to get to the point, you know, I think like Dave Ramsey, it's a hundred million dollar company where you go, this is the kind of thing that changes generations 
is that possible? I mean, do you think it is possible for a personal brand to become a business that has a sellable equity or because of your number six, if a personal brand is built around the personality of the person, you're saying that that maybe isn't as independent. So is it not sellable or like, you just talk to us about that. Well, those are not mutually exclusive principles to build a business around a personality as long as it is sustainable after that personality exits. So let's take Dave Ramsey as an example. He has a fabulous business and you know hundreds of employees and does tremendous value to people all around the world. And I know he has worked very hard over the past you know several years to develop you know, a sustainable business that, yeah, it depends on him as his radio, his voice, but having a business that if he steps out, if he got, you know, the proverbial, if he got hit by a bus, right, would the business continue? That, that's, we don't want to happen, example. Dave. We love you, Dave. We're, no, we're listen, Dave fans. And he's, so. No, they, I use Dave as an example. For, guess why? Because he's done it right. <laughs> he's done it right. <laughs> you know, he's done most things right. It's not all things. He started as a, as very much a business around Dave and Dave's personality and Dave's point of view and Dave's presence, but he's worked very hard to develop myriad of products that go beyond his voice on the radio. And that's what those hundreds of people down there in that office building do. They create products and they deliver them to the customer base. So Dave's done a great job of developing a business that is sustainable outside of his presence. It's built on his name, but it's not built anymore just around him. But that, but in, in fairness, he'd be the first to tell you that's not easy to do. That takes a lot of time and energy and focus. And I think to your point about mission-driven messengers, of which I hope I would be considered myself one as well, we get so focused on our mission and doing our work, and most of us love the work we do. It's kind of the nature of what drives us to it. It's then hard to kind of separate it and think about, okay, am I really creating something that has sustainability and extends beyond me. And that's the leap most mission-driven messengers don't make. Yeah, yeah. But that's interesting to hear you say that, you know, as someone who's buying and selling businesses, helping people do that back and forth, that you actually could have a business that had a very strong personal brand. And it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a sellable company just because it had a strong brand. But you should work as much as you can to kind of go like, what would happen if we took that personality out of it? Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, and I communicate this to business owners all the time. And by the way, this is a problem, Roy, not just for mission-driven messengers. This is a problem for a lot of business owners out there. Ah, um, if, any if the business owner. Were, oh, yeah, any, if they're uh, sure, not an sure. author, it's still just whoever the founder is. Well, I've got a client uh, in North Tennessee, just 30 miles north of here. Guy has a really, really good business, 68 years old and wants to retire. But if we sell the business on a Friday and he's gone on Monday, the customer base won't know what to do. And the people that run in the manufacturing floor won't know what to do. He really is the glue that keeps it running. So that's the same problem. He's got a fabulous business. And you go up, there's a lot of activity, a lot of people. But so when he leaves. So what do you do? Like, what do you, how do you get around this? Well, there's two answers. Number one, well, there's three answers. Number one, you don't sell the business. You just close the doors and you milk it for all you can, as long as you can. And then when you're ready to retire, you lock the doors. Or pass uh, it to second, family or something like well, that. Well, that's kind of the second alternative. You just sell it for less than its potential. Or thirdly, you say, I'm going to stop and I'm going to try to fix this. And I, uh, I can't sell the business now, but I may take two or three years. And I, I've worked with business owners toward doing that. 
to help them really kind of develop their business in a way that, and that requires training people, but develop it in a way that sustains without them. That's the real point. And the common sense way of looking at it is you sell the business on a Friday and what happens on Monday? That business owner doesn't show up. Do people know what to do when they come to work? Do the customers still have the product that they want or the services that they want? So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And I've had a lot of, let me tell you, Roy, I've had some difficult conversations with business owners to say, hey, your your business is not saleable in this format. And they go, well, I'm I'm making great money here. The guy that I was telling you about, uh, he's got a really strong business and made a fabulous amount of wealth over the course of time. And he, you know, might be in a situation where he can, he can afford to close the doors and walk out, but not everybody can do that. So I want to talk again, as this dynamic specific, as I think this is fascinating. I don't think I've never been in rooms talking about personal branding where people are talking about this. And I think it's like, I think this is an incredible opportunity because the tools exist today to mm-hmm. launch a personal brand faster than ever before, build it meaningfully. Right. And I want to talk about recurring revenue specifically. So first, just highlight for us, I feel like in general, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, recurring revenue is sometimes valued differently than most businesses. And can you talk about when and if so and how? And then I want to talk about specifically, you know, there's a lot of recurring revenue type of models that you see in personal branding. And, you know, I'd love to kind of just talk about those for a minute. But is recurring revenue valued differently typically? And if so, when and how and why? The answer is yes. The reason goes to my second qualitative factor, which is sustainable revenue stream. Mm -hmm. Recurring revenue is perceived, well, let's say it this way, it is perceived as less risky because whether it may be contracted or it's an ongoing delivery of service, it doesn't have to be sold every month, every week or every year. So in theory, it should be more profitable revenue because you've got the customer on a recurring purchase behavior. So that's why it's more valuable. If you kind of peel the onion back a few layers, you go, the recurring revenue is more profitable because it's perceived as less risky. And people, Mm. by definition, the way the world's financial markets work, it's always a trade-off between risk and reward. And the higher the risk, the less you'll pay for something. So recurring revenue is perceived as reducing the risk so a buyer pays more. How are recurring revenue companies valued different from, you know, like you were saying before, basically a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of profits? <clears throat> well, they, as a category, they're not. And a lot of people are confused about that. But it, it, let's go back to our example of a million dollar EBITDA business. And we just look at it from a quantitative factors. And we're going to say it has a multiple of 10 just for discussion purposes. Sure. And then I look at it and go, wait a minute. Well, hold on a second. That million dollars is recurring. Mm-hmm. That million dollars is automatic. That million dollars is on a like a cell phone contract or a security alarm or something. So what does that tell me about the million dollar revenue or million dollar EBITDA? It's less risky. Well, by definition, I'll pay more. I don't think of it as a category and go, oh, because it's recurring revenue, I'm going to pay 15. I just look at it and go, it is a less risky proposition to buy that business because of the sustainability and the less risk of the revenue. So therefore, I can pay more. 
in your eyes, you just see it as like, it's going to help skew the calculation of the multiple maybe to be a little bit higher because it's absolutely less, less risk. Okay. Cause so, ultimately it's about risk and reward. Just if you grab that premise, it makes sense. Yeah. So now we've got a lot of our clients who are like, you know, they either have a monthly leadership training or a monthly entrepreneur program mm -hmm. or monthly mm -hmm. fitness. We have a bunch of people that have like right. some monthly fitness product. Do you think that those, are those more sellable than like, let's say if you created a video course or something and you said, hey, I got a one-time course here that's available for sale and I have a model for going out and selling it versus, you know, like if I have, say I have a thousand dollar course that I sell one time versus I have 10 customers who pay a hundred dollars, you know, a year or whatever the time frame is. Is one more sellable than the other, do you think? Or is it just basically come down to what's the sustainability of the profits? What's the track record? How long has it been going on? How likely is it to continue? Yeah, you know, the very first thought is how evergreen is the content? I mean, because at some point mm. that $1,000 product has to be, you know, reconceived or represented or improved. So it's so dependent, Rory, on the factors. And that's why I'll say it over and over and over business valuation is much more of an art than a science. Let's grab hold of the principle. The recurring nature of the revenue is more valuable. That's what we're trying to communicate. Yeah, and I've always kind of, I've always wondered like, you know, if we had a fitness business, let's say as an example, mm -hmm. I've always wondered to go, I wonder if there would be some type of a strategic buyer maybe that would come in and they don't even want the content, they just want the customers and they're right. just gonna pluck the customers out and put them on whatever their platform is and be like, we already have our own fitness system and machine. We just want these paying customers. And we know that, you know, based on data, some percentage of them will stay over some period of time. And oh, that, a realistic I've, done, scenario. I've made acquisitions like that in the, in the past. When I was at Salem Communications for nine years, I oversaw lots of transactions. And when you look at a business that has that kind of sustainability, you'll buy it. I mean, you're not really telling the seller, you're just buying the customer list, but that's sort of what you're doing. You just, you know, that customer has a certain purchase behavior and they'll buy from party A or party B, uh, kind of whoever's just there to deliver that purchase behavior. So yeah, you can buy a customer list. You try to figure out how much of that customer, let's say you got a hundred customers and they're each, you know, spending a thousand bucks a year. It's a hundred thousand dollar revenue stream. So, well, I think that I get, 70% of those to transition over to my platform. So you then look at it as a $70,000 you know, revenue stream. Then you kind of start your valuation on that number. But that's very much a, a normal principle in business acquisition and would certainly work in the personal services side. An example you Fascinating. Use. Fascinating stuff. Jim Cumby. So the book we mentioned is called Home Run, A Pro's Guide to Selling a Business. You can check that out. Jim, where else do you want people to go if they want to you know, learn more about you or connect with you or, hey, if they have a business and they're going, I want to sell this thing. And, yeah. You know, I need someone to help me. Well, I appreciate that. My website is tnvalleygroup.com. My business is Tennessee Valley Group, by the way. I'm not sure we said that. So my website is tnvalleygroup.com. There are all sorts of ways to connect with me there. I have a bi-monthly blog called Entrepreneurs Say the Darnest Thing, where I, every time I meet with an entrepreneur, I tend to hear something that kind of is blog-worthy, and I write a blog twice a month about 
things I've learned through talking to entrepreneurs. I always change the name and the fact pattern so I'm not giving away any personal secrets, <laughs> but I hear some crazy things and which are, we'll try to communicate stories. So you can subscribe to that on my website. But there's all sorts of content there that can help you figure out the, your company valuation. I've got actually a questionnaire called Know Your Value that takes you through the seven principles of irresistibility to help you grade yourself on, on that. Mm. I've actually had people come back to me and say, hey, I'm not going to sell my business, but we're going to start grading ourselves on these seven principles because we want to sell in two or three years. We want to make progress on each of these seven principles. So, but there's a lot Love of content that. there. And that's the best way. And then my phone number and emails is on my website, pmvalleygroup.com. All right. Well, we'll put a link up there to tennesseevalleygroup.com. Thanks for being here. And I think hopefully for expanding our minds, like of just going, hey, there's a big, it's not just how much money do you make every year, but it's like, if we do this the right way, we can draw mm -hmm. off an amazing income and actually have some big pot, you know, of gold maybe at the end of the tunnel. So, or at the end of the rainbow, I guess you'd say. So. Well, you know, it can be a pot of bronze or a pot of silver. There's a pot there if you think about it. I think the point is do a little planning. Like Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind and you'll have a better result. I love it. Thanks so much, Jim. We wish you the best. We'll catch okay. you again sometime in the future. Thanks, Roy. Great talking with you as always, man. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free lifetime access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we will get you set up with free lifetime access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.